Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahna Saqani. Today, we have a lovely discussion with Michael Prajil about his new book, The Golden Calf Between Bible and Quran, Scripture, Polemic, and Exegesis from Late Antiquity to Islam, published with Oxford in 2020. Prajil is a scholar of comparative religion who focuses on early Islam, early and classical Islam, late antiquity, and the comparative study of scriptural traditions. He's also the leader of two peer-reviewed academic journals. In this exciting new book, Prajil explores the biblical and Quranic episode of the golden calf as understood by various Jewish, Christian, and Muslim sources. The incident refers, of course, to when the Israelites created a golden calf in the absence of the prophet Musa. Prajil shows that the episode's various interpretations across time reflect the cultural, religious, social, ideological, textual, and many other contexts in which the issue was being discussed. Each community sought to legitimate its own existence, theology, and tradition through its interpretation. So, for instance, the episode is central to Jewish and Christian arguments over the inheritance of the covenantal legacy of Israel. Each community also appropriates and subverts the apologetic renderings and tropes of the other communities, not passively accepting or rejecting, but strategically negotiating with it to adapt to new contexts. The episode, therefore, becomes crucial for the community's self-identification. More specific to Islam is a key component of Prajil's argument that whilst Western academic scholars draw heavily from the tafsir tradition, they fail to situate the episode in its historical context in the late antique milieu. In our discussion today, Prajil describes the golden calf episode at length from biblical and Quranic perspectives. He summarizes some of the major arguments and contributions of the book, identifies scholars with whom he is in conversation, discusses the status of Quranic studies today, reflects on the identity of the mysterious Samari in the Quranic version, emphasizes the recent diminished importance and the dire need of exploring tafsir, or Quranic exegesis, in the study of Islam, explains the relationship between Western scholars of Islam and classical Muslim exegetes, specifically in the context of this episode, and a lot more. Here is my interview with Michael Prajil. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your wonderful book, The Golden Calf Between Bible and Quran, Scripture, Polemic, and Exegesis from Late Antiquity to Islam. Um, I'm very excited to discuss this with you. I had I, I enjoyed reading it, um, and I look forward to our discussion today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So it's our tradition on the New Books Podcast to ask our guests to tell us about their intellectual journey and how they got here. So could you walk us through that for a bit? Of course, sure. And again, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to make some small contribution to our current golden age of podcasting. Uh, I'm happy it's an academic podcast and not a true crime podcast. Anyway, uh, so my intellectual journey. Yeah, so my undergraduate uh, degree is in religion and Middle East studies um, with a focus on uh, Islamic studies. My, my undergraduate mentor, who would later become my doctoral advisor was Peter Ahn, who was a well-known figure at Columbia and uh, I think is well-known to Islamicists as uh, the author of this book, uh, Satan's Tragedy and Redemption, uh, Iblis in Sufi Psychology. I don't think I realized, you know, when I was 19 <laughs> that that Peter's work would end up really shaping my, 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 my own trajectory so strongly. But uh, yeah, so as an undergrad, I did Islam, Middle East Studies. Uh, at some point, I guess because Peter was a scholar of Sufism primor- primarily, I-, I became interested in Sufism and was kind of conceived of a, of a long-term project of doing comparative work on Sufism and Kabbalah. I guess from the beginning, I had this interest in the interface between uh, Judaism and Islam. 
So for my master's, I went to Harvard Divinity School. And while I was there, I, I mainly did Hebrew Bible and rabbinics, uh, developed an interest in uh, Midrash, right, rabbinic scriptural commentary. Uh, and then after a, a taking a number of years off working in a professional position, uh, I went back to school for my PhD. And my PhD is in Islamic studies, but really is um, kind of poised between um, classical Judaism and classical Islam, focusing on late antiquity, uh, the Quran, the the life of the prophet, and and so forth. And when I did my PhD, I think I was really just imagining a, a purely kind of co- a broader comparative project of thinking about you know the interfaces between Islam and Judaism, Bible and Quran, Midrash and Tafsir. Um, also thinking about you know modern modern discourses or imaginings of the relationship between them, right? You have like how Jews thought about Jews in, in Western scholarly tradition thought about the Quran, how modern Muslims have thought about Judaism, uh, thought about Judaism's impact on Islam itself, <laughs> right? Like Israeliat, things like that. Um, and, and so that was my, my mature project. And, and I think the, the big thing that changed, I think, between my PhD thesis in 2008 and the book, which took about 10 years to complete, and I, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone, but c'est la vie. Uh, the, the big thing that, that had changed is that, of course, starting in the mid-2000s, there was this kind of explosion of interest in the Quran, right, in, in its late antique milieu. This sort of thing was really just nascent when I was doing my degree, but really kind of influenced me very strongly over the decade I was writing this book, of thinking about where was chronic studies going, what kinds of work are people doing, um, you know, on, on the Quran, thinking about ways to think about the chronic milieu in a more constructive, maybe less reductionist way than had been in the past. But again, there was this kind of, there's been this renaissance of chronic studies right over the last decade or so. And so that really, I think, impacted what, what the book became. Um, something maybe we, we can get into at some point would be, you know, on, on the one hand, I think there's certain, certain pros where, um, you know, in the wake of this renaissance or explosion of scholarship or what have you that, you know, now it's no longer weird for people to try to talk about like the literary horizons, the, the source, even the sources of the Quran. That, that, that was work that was of course done in the 19th century, early 20th century, but had kind of gone away for a number of decades. And, and I think now has come back and again, a number of us are trying to do this work more in a more responsible, um, conscientious way. I think that's a big pro, but the big con is that I think that what we've seen in the last few years is a diminishing interest in tafsir. There was this flourishing of interest in and, and recognition that like tafsir is something separate from the Quran. It's not merely unpacking what's in the Quran, but it's rather the creation of new meaning based on the Quran. There was a huge spike in scholarship on, on tafsir. I don't know, maybe between like say 2008, 2014, 2015, and it's it's really kind of slowed down now, which I think is too bad because for me, I've always wanted to balance those interests of of on the one hand the, focusing on the Quran, but also recognizing the importance of tafsir as an autonomous discipline. Mm-hmm. No, so you said the book t- took you ten years, right? More or less, yes. Um, so I, I it's I mean it's five for our audience members it's some 500 pages long and it is it, it's it's an important read um, it gets intense at times because you're thinking there's this one episode how much could a person have to say on it but the sources you're dealing with your training shows all throughout I think you're dealing with I mean Greek Latin Arabic Hebrew all kinds of sources from very different time periods um, and so, I mean, it's a really impressive range of materials that you're working with. So uh, the 10 years, I mean, the amount of work you put into it is very, very obvious. Um, so speaking of then the field of Islamic uh, studies and um, who are some of your, the, some of the interlocutors um, that you're dealing with or who you're engaging um, with this particular research? Yeah. I, so when I started, it was still, uh, again, for complex reasons, I think that it, it had by certainly like the you know the late nineties or so that that it had chronic studies had shifted right and I think most of your 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 listeners will realize this right that that there was always this i mean again pros and cons right there has always been this strong interest in the Quran in western like anglo european scholarship on the quran um 
And so that's the good news. There is this previous work that we can build on. But the bad news, of course, is that much of that work is reductive, <laughs> if not if not overly overtly polemic polemical. And I think that there was a certain kind of impasse that was reached start really by like the 70s, early 80s, where on the one hand, people realized that that there was a kind of politically problematic, ideological nature of Quranic studies as it had been practiced in some quarters, like leading up to like the 70s and 80s. You know, and, and people came to realize that, oh, for certainly by that time, that, you know, in the academy, you can no longer speak of Muslims as objects, right? <laughs> that, that Muslims are subjects and and that and that and have a place in the academy and that there is a kind of a dialogical um, dynamic there that has to be recognized that you know basically like I think that the decolonization of Quranic studies really begins maybe in the in the late 70s and early 80s where people begin to realize that you know the 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 Quran ha- cannot be spoken of as this historical artifact devoid of meaning but rather has to be understood in its Muslim contexts and of course that's like a huge and important development but the other development of course is revisionism right that there's all this work done in the 70s where there are claims that essentially the historical frame that is conventionally invoked to explain the Quran and its its kind of what horizons of meaning that this has you know, this starts to be questioned in various ways with the, the this this emergence of a kind of skepticism about the reliability of sources on Muhammad and so forth. And I think that right now we're at a moment in our present, you know, literally like 2020, 2021, we are now at a moment where the historical Muhammad is again being taken seriously, right? But you know, both revisionism and then also maybe a kind of ecumenism, these things kind of conspire so that there is this general agnosticism agnosticism about the Quran. Different ways of talking about the Quran come to the fore, and this sor- this source for origins or sources or whatever kind of falls by the wayside. I'm saying all this because, to me, in when I was doing my PhD, um, there was not a huge amount of work that was being done again on of this sort, where you're look trying to take the literary environment, the cultural trends of, of late antiquity as they impact the Quran. That that not a lot of work is being done on this in say 2005. You had asked about specific vectors of, of, of influence or things that, that were important for me. Um, Gerald Hodding's book, uh, The Idea of Idolatry and the Emergence of Islam, this was, what, 1999? I read that book when I got to graduate school in 2001, and that just it blew me out of the water. <laughs> it was a, It's a very serious, I think, um, widely influential but still somewhat under-discussed work that calls into question – um, the Quranic milieu, like what is like, ser- like working from the Quranic text itself? What can we infer about what's going on in the prophetic period and who the Quran's interlocutors actually are? The next step after that, of course, is like Donner, right? Fred Donner's widely read Muhammad and the Believers, were working from the Quranic evidence. He can show that yeah, the Quranic milieu is proto-Islam is something different from what Islam becomes, but. If we take the text seriously, take the originating milieu seriously, we can come up with an an image of what the Quran means in its specific context. Uh, Angelica Neuwirth's work has been hugely influential on me. Uh, Patricia Crone's last publications, uh, her I mean, she's of course best known for her kind of notorious early work on the Quran, but towards the end of her life, the last decade or so, uh, Patricia moved towards uh, the study of the Quran in its milieu, so that she explicitly acknowledged she was building on the foundation of Hodding, that looking at like her, her articles on um, the Quranic Mushrikun, what is the, you know, the religion of the Quranic Mushrikun, what is going on in the milieu to give rise to Islam. All of this work that I've mentioned, I think, has helped me, in both in my PhD program and then moving to, as I've written the book, has helped me, I think, think about creative imaginative but responsible ways to talk about how the chronic message is embedded in a largely biblicized discourse without recourse to these kind of older modes of language where there was so much heavy influence on borrowing, uh, dependence, influence. And this is something that I've written about extensively. I, I, I have a whole section of my book about Geiger. I've written a lot about Geiger outside of my book. But you know there was this older focus on sources and dependence. And I think now we want to think more about the Quran in dialogue, participating in a larger discourse in its historical milieu. So those were some of the things that I read that had 
a lot of impact on me. Yeah, it's almost like nothing happens in a vacuum, right? Yeah, Which is right. <laughs> you're exactly. making in this, in this book. It, it turns out the, all these interpretations and the tellings of the episode have everything to do with, you know, what's going on around people. So um, let's talk now about this particular episode. For those of our audiences who may not be familiar with the biblical and Quranic episode of the Golden Calf, would you summarize briefly for us what that is? We can just focus on the, gen the generic um, parts of it. I know that the entire thing is contested. But, and, and also why it matters. Why is it important enough to, for us to be talking about it? Sure. So uh, on one level, it was, well, one reason for my choice, <laughs> essentially, of, 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 of drilling down and focusing on this one narrative was that um, it was, or is something that had not really been done before, to be honest. It's kind of strange that if you look at the major um, biblical episodes that resonate in the Quran, uh, that, and, and specifically episodes that are, signposts or uh, I mean what's these these episodes that are points of contention I'm I, I, you know, people who oh, this a slight slight digression people who do work on Bible and Quran uh, you know the intersections between Judaism Christianity and Islam they often foreground their work as being about you know connections relationships affinities but for me what I've actually always been interested in is this dynamic where, the points of connection or intersection or affinity are also points of contestation, friction, <laughs> right? Uh, that, that, that if for me, and we can maybe talk about this later, that for me, when, you, when you're engaged in the comparative work of, of scriptural narratives, you're usually talking about agonistic processes, that a, a narrative is in circulation, it comes to be adopted, appropriated by a community, and their specific way of retelling the narrative ends up being crucial for identity formation and tells you a lot about you know, who these people think they are and the kinds of claims they're trying to make vis-a-vis -vis other communities, right? And in my approach to, and, and, and that's something else we can get into maybe, is that you know, I, I'm going to just step right out there and say that you know, I consider Islam to be a biblical tradition. It's just that I've tried to rethink what, this, what it means to, to, to make that assertion. Because for me, I, I argue very strongly in the book that that Bible is a genre, right? And this isn't this isn't original to me, but something we don't hear enough in chronic studies, I think, is that Bible is a genre, and Quran and the Islamic tradition both participate in that genre or in that discourse and are involved in a process whereby the meaning of these core elements of what are ultimately Israelite identity identity are being contested between Jews, Muslims, Christians throughout history. And that, by the way, was the point of writing this long, this kind of long history, this diachronic history of the golden calf narrative from biblical Israel all the way to the, the Quran and beyond. Because these are, the, by tracing that long history, what we see is the gradual evolution of certain trends, the, the emergence of certain kinds of dynamics that then impact the Quran. So I, I, I wanted to emphasize the importance of not approaching the Quran in, in isolation from this, this long, these longer trajectories. The calf story had never been studied in this way. There's a ton of literature on you know, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and the Quran, how, the, how their portrayal relates to um, Jewish and Christian tradition, uh, Mary, so forth and so on. But strangely, for a narrative that ha carries a lot of weight, <laughs> that is deeply freighted for Jews, Christians, and Muslims, the calf story had really been not not been studied very extensively. So that was what attracted that to attracted me to that, um, both doing it as as my my doctoral dissertation and then to keep working on it and to write this um, kind of long view or diachronic history in, in the in the book. And and what happens in this calf story? Oh right, sorry, that was the original question. Yes, so yeah, so the in in the the master narrative is, is traditionally taken to be Exodus, right? Exodus thirty two, where you know Moses is up on Mount Sinai, he's left the Israelites uh, behind, sort of at the foot of, at the foot of the mountain, in the care of his his surrogate brother uh, Aaron, who is also happens to be the um, the ancestor or the, the progenitor of the Israelite high priesthood, which is not immaterial to my argument. Um, Moses goes up, receives, receives the Torah. Uh, meanwhile, the people down in, in the Israelite camp basically lose hope that Moses will, will return. Um, and certainly in 
some discourses on the calf, it's then kind of recognized that the people think of Moses as a, as a kind of surrogate for God. That's something that can be unpacked there. Um, but the people kind of despairing of, of Moses' return, they create this idol, right? A golden calf. And the meaning of that story is, is contested and debatable in the Israelites' uh, milieu, but of course, in later Jewish and Christian traditions of interpretation, starting really in, I think, that the, the, the stratum of biblical tradition that, that emerges with Deuteronomy during the exilic or post-exilic period, that, that the, the calf story is understood as the kind of primary example of idolatry. And so in Jewish and Christian tradition in, in late antiquity, there are various kinds of um, exegetical developments that emerge surrounding the story. For example, in um, Jewish tradition, there's often been this very strong um, interest in apologetic, that explaining why Aaron, who is, the, again, the progenitor of the high priesthood, why he would have let, let the people degenerate into idolatry or worse, why he would have you know, been their ringleader, right? Um, Christians latch on to the the tradition of what of, of kind of communal criticism that surrounds the, the calf story. In much of the material in the in the the canonical Hebrew Bible, excoriates Israel for falling into idolatry at, at that moment when Moses is up on Sinai, kind of ratifying the covenant, right, by receiving the Torah. And so, for for in Christian tradition. The, the reading of the story is one of um, the story proving the disconfirmation of Israel. So in Jewish and Christian exchanges on the story, there's a lot at stake in terms of the question of um, you know, who is the true Israel? Is the Israelite covenant still valid? What is Moses's role? What is Aaron's role? And so forth. And what I really wanted to, tr- to try to do in the book was to show how the Quran is linked with these narratives and and traditions and discourses, but not in the way that people have thought, <laughs> because the in, as conventionally understood the, in the chronic story, there are um, significant variations from what appears in kind of the canonical tellings among Jews and Christians, and the Quran is often understood as as portraying a, a story where Aaron has kind of stepped aside, is no longer as significant as he is in the biblical story. That this new character called Samiri, which is often understood as a Samaritan, he emerges as the kind of ringleader of idolatry. And the calf is no longer just a kind of dumb, inanimate idol, but has in some way been made uh, to appear to have the, the to, to appear alive or to actually be alive. And, and this itself is actually a, a highly contested thing in later Islamic tradition. Is the thing an organic flesh and blood being? Is it a, an animate kind of robot? an animated metal robot. There's this whole kind of continuum of interpretations in Tefsir. The big argument that I make is that that story that I've just related to you of the Samaritan and the animate calf is actually what emerges in Tefsir. And the impact of that, that, that story in the Tefsir is so strong that it's actually colored the way that we read the chronic story. But if you read the chronic story, it's very ambiguous and that, and I argue essentially that the chronic story is a retelling of the story as it's known in Exodus, where Aaron is still the maker of the calf. The calf is not animate, and unlatching the chronic story from these elements of Tafsir allows us to see that other things are actually going on in that story, and the concerns in the chronic story are much more similar to the traditional concerns that have surrounded the story as it's known in Jewish and Christian precursors. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. I'd also, I mean, I've read this story many, many times, um, including the, the the points, the, uh, the the passages that you discuss heavily in this book as well. And I never occurred to me that Samiri was someone else. The was no was Aaron, um, or that if he he may have been Aaron, or that there, um, you know, there were. There's also a was it a I forget the word. Is it Hur? I think I remember reading that. Um, yeah. So there's a character named Hur who is the. Uh, probably best known to at least Anglo <laughs> to Anglo members of the audience, like Ben Hur, like the movie with about about this 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 character played by uh, uh, Charlton Heston, Ben Hur. Yeah, the the in, in the Bible, Hur is the um, what the father or 
the grandfather of Betzalel, this figure who is the architect of the temple. Um, but so I think probably because the, the architect of the temple is this is this character named Betzalel who is descended. Is it Betzalel ben Uri ben Hur, something like that? Um, Hor is given this kind of pedigree where he's projected back into the Sinai narratives, and he's made to be kind of like Aaron's right hand man, like his lieutenant <laughs> when when Moses takes off. And there are these midrashic stories about Aaron and Hor where, as part of the kind of Jewish exegetes' attempts to construct apologetic on Aaron's behalf, what what one of the first I think major kind of um, exegetical innovations that we see in in Jewish tradition in particular is that there comes to be an emphasis on exonerating Aaron. That this the, relatively early co- comes out that because of Aaron's significance as this priestly figure, that he the exegetes try to figure out well what, why does it seem that in the in the story in Exodus why does Aaron go along with it why would this guy of all people have gone along with this idolatrous impulse of the people. And so the rabbinic exegetes come up with these various stories that explain that, in fact, when you see Aaron appearing to go along with the people in the Exodus narrative, what he's actually doing is he's he's delaying them. He's messing with them in various ways. He's trying to slow them down because he knows that if Moses returns, the people will lose their interest in the golden calf. Um, there's a, a strand in rabbinic tradition in, in late antiquity where this figure, Hur, uh, emerges as part of the Aaron complex, where he is um, basically her attempt to stop the people from making the calf, and he is killed. And so Aaron is is portrayed as being afraid that the same thing is going to happen to him. And so this is another reason that he just goes along with it. Hur does not appear in the Quran or Islamic tradition, obviously, but what it shows us is that there is this apologetic strand that begins to be so widely circulated that's actually picked up by Christians. So the Syriac tradition on the calf, often you'll see the, the appearance of Hur as part of the textual landscape surrounding the story. And it's interesting, I guess, to me that because Hur is so prominent, but he's absent in the, in the Quranic and Islamic retellings. Yeah. So one of, one of the points that you make um, in the book is that the there are multiple tellings of the story um, going on at various at, at different times. Um, the depiction of so and, and also that there's bull worship. Bull worship was completely normal um, at, at this time. Um, we've also got you point uh, in, out that in, in Israel, <laughs> we're not certainly not by late antiquity, but certainly in in yeah, the background to the Exodus story. Yeah, for sure. Right, exactly. That's what I meant. Sorry. So yes. Um, and so, so there's clearly so bull worship is totally common and normal at this time um, in, in, at the in, in in ancient Israel. You've also got um, you point out that the depictions of God at, is is also a very very gradual process, and so the, the depictions of God as a formless um, and invisible being is something that develops over a long period of time, um, and and that it wasn't necessarily. In, in earlier um, in, in, or or by earlier Jews probably did not necessarily think of it as. Um, idols, right? Or if they were to imagine God as a physical being, physical being that wasn't necessarily, um, you know, a, a false god, and so on. Can you tell us a little? More? So, what I'm interested then is in how exactly the Exodus account, um, you know, come to come to be, how 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 it comes to form. Um, if there were other ways of telling the story that could have also been standardized, the way that the Exodus account becomes standardized. Um, what happened and why, basically, why is the Exodus version the standard version as, as we know it from the biblical account? Yes, great, great. So, yeah, this is all kind of dealt with, I think, in the, the second chapter. So, I and and I actually struggled with this because, to some sense, there, in some sense, there's a radical break. Because I would argue that, I mean, I think that a, a fairly common understanding of, of the Pentateuch is that it, uh, that you know, represents the the gradual collation of different strands of Israelite tradition, and what you were referring to about like bull, bull worship is that I mean it's not exactly bull worship. It's that we we tend to conceive of the calf in a fairly flat, um, unsophisticated way as a false god, right? That the Israelites have this intention of worshiping some other deity than you know the Lord God of Israel, their patron deity. And the calf is the ultimate symbol of that, both because it's a calf and not God, but also because it's a tangible, visible form, right? And as the as uh, 
your various strata of Israelite tradition make, make clear, God does not have a visible form. I mean, what that in itself is something that can be debated, but we have this understanding of, of the calf story as being about idolatry, about straying after false gods, because of basically the Deuteronomic stratum, that the canonical narratives that come down to us that tend to be authoritative for Jews and Christians, and certainly by by late antiquity, that those that that perception of the narrative is is standard, that the calf is simply an idol, and that when people stray from the proper worship of the Lord God of Israel, that what they're doing is simply going and worshiping something else, right? And and, that's, this, is just a, and this is certainly the, the notion of, of shirk that we have <laughs> in the Quran, right? But I think it needs to be emphasized from the outset that that is not really the oldest or native conception of the calf. It does seem that the calf story in Exodus reflects kind of a throwback to some some older period of time where at least among the northern tribes of, of Israel that the calf was seen as uh, signifying the the unseen presence of God. The calf is not itself the deity, but rather is the throne on which the deity resides, exactly like the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, you know, when when the Israelites in, in the Israelite monarchical period, when the Israelites you know, worship God at Jerusalem, right? They weren't worshiping a box, <laughs> the ark that resided in the Holy of Holies. They were worshiping a God who was understood to manifest invisibly atop the box. That was essentially the, the meaning of the calf, I think, in its oldest, the oldest strata, that the calf was a sign of God's presence. But already even in, in the northern kingdoms, in, in northern kingdom, in the, in the pre-exilic period, that was extremely problematic. And so basically the issue was that God did not want to be worshipped that way, but the Israelites regressed to this older form, even though God had said, no, don't don't worship me by means of the form of any kind of a living thing. But this was subtly transformed, I think, in the, in the later period, and certainly by the exilic period, into the idea that it's not the God of Israel who's being worshipped incorrectly, it's some other deity entirely. And I would really emphasize this because it's interesting to me that that, that, that conception, that sort of simplified, flattened conception of what idolatry is, came to be so widely authoritative that basically for all of the post, <laughs> what the post-exilic communities that evolve emerging out of that biblical stream or tradition most broadly conceived, Jews, Christians, Muslims, they all conceive of idolatry as meaning the worship of a false god. And this, by the way, I think is one of the reasons that that narrative dovetails so well into the Quranic imaginaire, right? Because the Quran is deeply concerned with this historic tension between uh, denial of the true God, worship of God through incorrect means, and conversely, proper submission to God and worshiping God through the ways that he wants to be worshiped, right? So again, this is another reason why the calf, the calf story I think is so so important in the Quran, even though, even though it only, only occurs, I think, in like five passages. Yeah. And then, so um, we're talking here, the book is focused on late antiquity, which what roughly third to eighth century um, we're talking about. What exactly is going on here at this particular mom- moment in history um, that makes this particular time significant? And um, the tellings and retellings of the story also significant. Yeah, so the, the the late antique period for me is particularly important vis-a-vis the story because I, I well and and for the Quran in general, right? I mean, not not just the story, but there is this explosion of literary evidence of engagements with these Israelite stories, right? The canonization of the Hebrew Bible occurs gradually over a period of centuries. There comes to be this penumbra of uh, Jewish retellings, expansions, interpretations of various scriptural passages. Christian Christian movement emerges in dialogue with its Jewish matrix, eventually comes to define itself as, as something separate, however long that takes. There's a huge debate over that, obviously. Um, but then Christian retellings of the story proliferate as well. And And again, for me, what's so interesting is that there is both this 
convergence or coincidence or affinity and also friction and contestation <laughs> because Jewish and Christian exegetes often make similar or parallel claims, but they're making these claims in service of different ends and in fact, oppose, opposing ends, right? So, and a good example of this is again, apologetic for Aaron, right? That, that Jews start to tell the golden calf story in such a way as to make Aaron to, to, to clean up Aaron's reputation, to make him seem not like the arch idolater that he is in the book of Exodus, right? There's a certain concern for uh, the, well, like what, what, what many, many centuries later would be called Isma, right? That already in, I think the rabbinic tradition, there is a concern for, the character of prophets, where their motivations, um, their, you know, the, the extenuating circumstances behind their actions, these things come to be of, of interest to exegetes, right? And then this later uh, takes off and becomes the, the, the Islamic doctrine of the impeccability of prophets. But Jews start telling the calf story in such a way as to kind of make excuses for Aaron and for the people as well, but especially for Aaron because of his prominence as the uh, progenitor of the priesthood. There's also some interest here in um, maintaining the continuity of the covenantal tradition, that there is no disruption in God's relationship with Israel. This becomes super important because this is exactly the claim that Christians made based on the calf story, that for them, the calf the calf became evidence of the fact that is that Israel was disconfirmed at Sinai. God basically um, already at the time of the revelation of the Torah to Moses, God is already planning to disinherit the Israelites. This comes out in, in Christian exegesis, but at the same time, Christians also start, especially in the Syriac tradition, Christians start constructing the similar kinds of apologetic for Aaron in particular, not because they care about the priesthood per se, but because Jesus is seen as inheriting Aaron's role in some way as, as the, the high priest. So Jews and Christians, again, making different kinds of arguments, but all, you know, or, or I should say making the same argument, but for different reasons, <laughs> essentially. And this coincidence of, again, of what, of, of this, this, ten, this, this characteristic dynamic of um, both, Difference and similarity, uh, friction, but also affinity. The, this, you know, the, the 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 give and take, push and pull. The this I think is kind of the foundation of late antique scriptural culture. <laughs> There's a that there are these shared traditions, shared ideas, shared symbols. But again, communities are engaging these and retelling these stories for different ends and ends that ends up end up being. Um, you know, exclusive, that each tr- each community is asserting its special status, the particular privileging of its truth claims. They're saying the same things in mutually legible ways, but in the service of different kinds of what we might call like ideological claims. And I think the Quran is very much a participant in that process, and Muslims who then comment on scriptural stories in the Quran that are held in common with the Bible, Muslims themselves then enter this 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 large, broad stream of, of tradition that I think begin, is, is, is the larger stream of, of late antique scripturalism. So that actually answers two of my questions, because I was going to ask specifically about, you know, what, let's, uh, let's talk specifically about what um, are some of the interpretations that the Jews have come up with historically um, and how, depending on the various kinds of sources that, that we're using, and then also specifically Christian ones, and what is at stake uh, for both of those communities. So you just answered both of those questions. Thank you. And then your last point actually brings me into the Islamic one. So for the Muslim interpretations um, of and engagements with the story, I, I think I would have liked to see some uh, some specific uh, Muslim exegetes engaging the story in, in similar ways that you dealt with Christians and Ju- Christian and Jewish uh, um, individuals as well. But you also note that um, I believe at least are the, the classical Islamic scholars, exegetes, they, there are some standard interpretations of the story, right? So there are some things that they seem to agree on. It's like Aaron bears absolutely no blame. The Samiri was a person who created the golden calf. 
Um, the calf was animated and actually came to life. So can you talk to us about, can you elaborate on some of these? And what assumptions are Muslims, Muslim exegetes taking for granted in the way that they deal with the story at the yes. time of the war? This is, this is one of my favorite subjects because I've, I've been, I've not been able to write about it as much. <laughs> that in, in the same way that we see kind of a coalescence of claims and ideas and, or coincidence, I guess, of, of claims and ideas about the calf in late antiquity that then in, among Jews and Christians that then impact the Quran. Uh, what's always been really fascinating to me is that starting with the reception and interpretation of the Quran among the, the Mufassirun and other Muslim commentators, there's another convergence where we see in particular um, Jewish exegetes of the, the post-Islamic period, starting I think already in the say the 8th, 9th century and going into the Middle Ages, that there's an impact of tafsir in particular on Jewish exegetes. So, so certainly by the time you see the classical commentators on the Torah in the Middle Ages, they are making claims that are familiar from tafsir, essentially. That, that Jewish exegetes start talking about the biblical story the same way that Muslim exegetes talked about the Quranic story. And in all of these traditions, there comes to be a, a, a real interest in exonerating Aaron, in pushing the idea that there is this other figure who was responsible, and especially in the nature of the calf as an entity. And this is because in the Quran, you know, there's this, this phrase, Ijil which means you know, a calf, a body that lows. Uh, I argued in my book that essentially this is a, a, a calc or kind of a, an adjusted translation of a, of a phrase that shows up in the Psalms, where the calf is referred to as uh, what is the phrase? It's the that the, the, the calf of Horeb is described as um, the image of a calf that eats grass. And what this means is, of course, an image of an animal that eats grass, not, not that they, the image itself eats grass. <laughs> and so when the Quran refers to the, the calf as a, a body or a form, that a, a calf, an image, a form that lows, it means it's an image of an animal that lows, not a lowing image of a calf <laughs> this, this gets I, I always have to stop myself to, to explain that right yeah so the, what, what's fascinating about fs here to me is that they really ran with the idea that the, the, it was the image itself that had been brought to life and had started lowing the israelites were duped by the calf because it made a show of being alive and what's always been really amazing to me is that essentially once this reading of the Quranic story uh, was asserted as kind of the dominant understanding, and, and I, I, I guess I would say that that probably occurred in some circles early on, though we do see some traces in Islamic literature that, that this was not the universal understanding of the story. Um, what, I th oh, what I've always been fascinated by was that having established that the calf was alive or appeared to be alive, there came to be this massive you know, controversy over what does this mean? <laughs> like, what does it mean that the calf was alive? And why would you think an idol was alive anyway? Because that's a kind of a problematic claim, right? To, to invest the calf with authenticity in that way. So I, I argued at least in my dissertation that um, basically before, before the time of Tabari, it was not uncommon to see traditionists refer to the calf as being flesh and blood. That Samiri just took the statue, created a living calf out of it. Um, there, For various reasons, this comes to be kind of theologically problematic. And starting, I really think, in the time between Tabari and Thatlibi, so you know, 9th, 10th century, that the idea that the calf is just this kind of like a robot, that it's this metal construct that doesn't truly have like a you know, like a doesn't have a soul it doesn't have any kind of authentic uh, anima or animating spirit this comes to be the dominant view and this kind of abides i think throughout tr throughout the the history of interpretation i would say that if there's a a single tradition that can be held to be the authoritative one it's that one that the calf is simply this kind of robot in a sense right uh but even there there's significant uh, dissent, and certainly by the time of 
uh, people like Fakhrarazi in the Middle Ages, there's interest in, in revisiting this and thinking about the calf as being some sort of a vessel for astral influences or being kind of a demonic construct in some way. So, so there comes to be this kind of esoteric or occult interpretation of what's going on with the calf. And that is also widespread in Jewish interpretation of the Middle Ages. Um, there's probably enough here to write a second book. <laughs> if people have not, if, if, if audience members have not heard enough from me about the golden calf, maybe I should write a second book. There, could, there could quite easily be a second book, a, a partner volume that I or somebody else could write. That would be the history of interpretation of the calf from the Quran all the way through to modern times. There's there, the, the, the energetic debate continues <laughs> and it's by no means my intention to suggest that the Quran is the end of the story. Uh, what the Mufasirun have to say about the episode, how you know exegetes of later centuries made sense of this, this is this is equally important. Oh, I would love something like that, actually. Um, so that's exciting. I'll get, I'll get right on that. <laughs> there's Good. quite a bit of material. It's vast, as you can imagine. So there's an excellent discussion um, in the book about the fact that some Western scholars have argued that the mention of Samiri, whoever that guy is, is an error. Um, and you argue that it's actually not an error, that it's deliberate and uh, it's a de- deliberate move on the Quran's part, um, that there's a particular rhetorical and dramatic effect that the Quran achieves by telling the story the way it does, including with the, with the summary. So can you talk a little bit about... Um, one, I'm interested in the status of the Quran in the Western. I know we, we mentioned this earlier a bit as well, but I'm particularly interested in the status of the Quran um, according to both the folks that you're engaging, but also how I guess more contemporary, like our generation of academics, are um, using the, the the arguments and the approaches of that generation, those generations of scholars who whom you're um, engaging in your in your book when you're talking about again the folks who are saying making comments like this is an error um, who feel comfortable enough to say something like that yeah this is a huge subject <laughs> you know. I, this is massive and and in fact one of the one of the reasons you know the the book begins with this extended introduction right where where i tried to kind of lay out some of the methodological and theoretical presuppositions and 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 kind of fr- and try to frame my approach uh, in a historically responsible way and it's something I've written about in elsewhere is that there is um, there's been a lot of interest in investigation of the Quranic text um, you know as a textual artifact right that like what are the literary precursors to this narrative this passage this term? I, there's been a ton of work like this in the last 10 years or so. Uh, this work is often really agnostic that, that people put, put out, put their, you know, their literary thesis out on the table and they say, well, philologically for a literary perspective, this, this is what I think the connection of this thing in the Quran is to this Syriac text or to this rabbinic text. But, this work often lacks a larger frame and larger conclusions, right? That people are generally kind of agnostic about, well, if this text has this connection to this precursor in Aramaic or Gez or whatever, what does this mean? People shy from the, the question of, you know, what, what kind of conclusions we might draw about where the Quran comes from. I think because those claims have in the past been so problematic, <laughs> right? Because people used the, the arguments about literary affinities and connections as a way, I think, to disparage Islam ultimately by showing, trying to prove that the Quran is somehow secondary, derivative. There was all of this work done in the 18th, 19th centuries. And I actually would argue that this work, work of our, of our, our, you know, predecessors actually harkened back to medieval polemic, <laughs> but this idea that like a Muhammad had, uh, you know, Jewish informants that Muhammad copied this from from Christians. I mean, th- these sorts of allegations, are, of course, are made arguably even in the prophet's time, and certainly in the earliest some of the earliest Jewish and Christian commenta- commentaries on Islam. This exactly this this thesis is is promoted that oh yeah this 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 Islam stuff in the Quran is just kind of copied from our stuff, right? This recurs throughout early 
modern scholarship on the Quran. And I think it presents a, a dilemma for modern scholars, right? How do we talk responsibly about the Quran as you know, connected to these other discourses without falling to this trap of denigrating the Quran's authenticity? Right or talking about uh, Muhammad in this in this way that is ultimately problematic for Muslims or not what responsible I think or, or has this concealed kind of ideological claim and of course there's no if you go out on the internet there's no shortage of contemporary people who are claiming that, who to latch onto Quranic scholarship and say see this proves that Muhammad just copied it from this person or that this thing from Islam was derivative and therefore Islam is other traditions, and this is of course nonsense. Uh, what I myself particularly have been interested in is what I call the influence paradigm. That um, Geiger, Abraham Geiger, massively influential figure who pioneered, I think, the modern study of the connections between the Quran and Jewish tradition. Geiger, Geiger was attempting to be ecumenical and progressive for his time, but I, I think had also kind of fed the flames of kind of reductionism, right? And arguing that Muhammad had copied a lot of the stuff in the Quran from rabbinic tradition. Uh, I very much have struggled to find different ways to talk about literary connections and parallels in a, in a more as being more dialogical forms of engagement, appropriation. Again, Angelica Neuwirth in particular, I think her work is extremely valuable for the very sophisticated way that she has um, come to talk about the relationship between, say, the, the proto-Islamic community, its use of established monotheistic traditions, how it's appropriating actual like modes of reading from other communities, that it's part of this larger continuum of Jewish and Christian communities engaging each other um, in various ways on the basis of this shared Israelite legacy. For me, I think like Norvith is, is, I think, the kind of the pinnacle of like talking about this in a sophisticated, responsible fashion that is not ultimately derogatory, that sees the Quran as part of a larger tradition, this larger discourse without um, subordinating it, right, to the to these other traditions as more original or more authentic. So I do have one last question about the content of the episode. I'm just, I'm trying to cover as much of the um, of content of the episode as possible, but the Samiri. Let's let's. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yes, I forgot. Who, who <laughs> I forgot is original? Yes. No, no, no. Who, who is the Samiri in the Quran? Um, you you suggest that it's um, that, that it's Aaron. Yes. Um, and that and and that it cannot be the Samaritan or a Samaritan because it's that's anachronistic. Tell us more about this. Yeah, sorry, I forgot that that was what our original. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I actually had. I don't. I don't think I've asked this question yet. So I you did great. I did it, so I, I apologize. Oh. <laughs> so, so this was one of the bigger breakthroughs for me in that um, in the scholarship on the story, in, in translations of the episode, there has always been this thinking that the Samaritan is, um, you know, this figure who's interjected into the story because of some previous rabbinic tradition of rivalry with the Samaritans, right? The Samaritans are this community that um, ultimately trace their lineage back to ancient Israelite times. Their relationship to uh, the Jewish community is often kind of complex and, and, and contested. Um, what matters for us, of course, is that in, in late antiquity, the rabbinic tradition works very hard to distance what they see as authentic Judaism or the authentic Israelite tradition from the Samaritans, the same ways it does that same way it does with Christianity. And Western commentators always assumed Samiri was a Samaritan, even though there isn't a there is no surviving pre-Quranic Jewish tradition that in on the calf that involves a Samaritan. <laughs> so it's this funny case where Depend, the Quran's dependence on a Jewish precursor is asserted, and there is absolutely no evidence for the existence of that Jewish precursor. And for me, I think the breakthrough came when, when I think I, I came to the understanding that when the Quran 
refers to this figure as Samiri, it doesn't mean a Samaritan. It means a Samarian. Because in in the tradition of the Hebrew Bible, um, ascribes the creation of golden calves in the Israelite in the northern Israelite kingdom to this this King Jeroboam. There's this famous story in the Book of Kings. I won't, I won't get into it, but essentially in biblical tradition, Samaria, the northern kingdom, is strongly associated with the worship of golden calves. And so, I was I've postulated that essentially in in calling the figure in the Quranic story Samiri, it's the Quran is basically saying. Uh, Samiri is the cre- the creator of Samarian worship, not Samaritan worship, because the Samaritans don't worship golden calves, but the people of Samaria did. And that was a first breakthrough for me. And then the second was uh, recognizing that you know, the, the, the Quranic story is not about Moses and Aaron and this third figure, a Samaritan. The story is really about the tension between Moses and Aaron, who is being called Samaria, that he is seen as the inventor of the worship that would later, in the post-Mosaic era, be propagated in the kingdom of Samaria, and then this is this is and to to my mind this reflects a larger conception of not so much Jewish tradition but of older biblical traditions that there's a there's a kind of an undercurrent here that echoes. Uh, Echoes of the Psalms, echoes of the Book of Kings that inform the Chronic story, and not some lost rabbinic tradition about Samaritans that, as far as we know, does not actually exist. Oh, so exciting. I mean, it was really, really enlightening, the whole discussion and um, all of the, uh, on every single part of the episode. And I, when, I, when I couldn't think that, oh, you know, there could be anything more that someone could say about this, nope. There were people who had talked about it previously, and then there were you analyzing it. This was a really, really fun book to read. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So I, um, before we end, is there anything else that you would like to add? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard you've heard enough enough from me. I guess one thing I want to the one thing I want to add is I, I really do mean it when I say that I, I the one thing I would change about contemporary chronic studies is the shift away from tafsir. I, I very much want to emphasize that I, I that I think that there's a certain kind of incompleteness to contemporary chronic studies because we now emphasize so, so much emphasis on the, the study of the Quran, its connection to older late antique Jewish and Christian tradition. But I really would love to see scholarship move the story forward, right? So we continue to talk in a, a, a more theoretically sophisticated way, a better informed way about how post-Quranic Muslim tradition continues to engage Judaism and Christianity, and the three traditions have this trialogue that continues to the present day. This is something I feel has kind of fallen by the wayside in Quranic studies. That's a relief for me because I'm dealing with tafsir um, and Muslim Christians and Jews in my current research, so very, very great stuff. Um, and then before we end the discussion, we'd like to ask our guests to tell us what they're working on currently that we can look forward to in the near future. Oh, sure. So I have, I, I guess, the two big projects I have on the horizon. Uh, one is I have a short book that's under contract now um, that it's an investigation of the concept of late antiquity. It's cleverly, it's cleverly called What is Late Antiquity? <laughs> it, it's one of those books that you can't tell what it's about from the title. Um, basically, the idea, as, as, as anyone who's looked at my book or a ton of other books, in chronic studies in the last 10 years or so, you know, the, this term late antiquity has come to be kind of used reflexively in the study of the Quran. And to me, it's kind of fascinating what, what the history of, of late antiquity as a historiographic uh, or, or scholarly construct is. And so the, this, this book would be kind of an extended essay on um, the coinage of the term how it was originally used to talk about these kind of transitional and hybrid cultural artifacts that uh, you know kind of bridge like classical culture and what you know like Byzantium or other medieval cultures. Um, you know, scholars like Peter Brown, uh, Garth Fowden, Avril Cameron, what they've done with this this construct in transforming the study of like late Roman, early Christian phenomena and, and other other cultures, and then how this this word late antiquity has become kind of a metonym for um you know 
approaches to Islam or to Sasanian culture or to other other cultural cultural um, entities of of the period, and specifically in kind of a comparative uh, or comparative lens, right? Like when we say Kalean antiquity, we mean I'm looking at this thing as it connects to all of these other things. How did we get here? <laughs> this is so. This is the subject of this book that that I hope to, to make progress on in the near future. And my second big project is a, is a book on Abraham Geiger and his approach to the Quran, specifically his Islamic sources, uh, the works that he used in writing his breakthrough uh, study of 1832-1833. Uh, what did Muhammad borrow from Judaism? Uh, I'm particularly interested in ways in which. Um, Geiger's case studies of so of supposed uh, dependence of the Quran on Judaism. How can we rethink these cases? How is is Geiger sometimes right? If he's wrong, why is he wrong? How does Geiger provoke us to think in a more constructive way about the Quran and its milieu? How might Geiger be cueing us to think more constructively about the way that Jewish tradition relates to Islamic traditions after the genesis of the Quran? Things like this. So that that's my second big project on the horizon. So exciting. I'm very much looking forward to both of those projects. And Michael, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me and for discussing your book and also for writing this book. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you so much. <laughs>